The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu. Okay, welcome to Ask Alex, episode 156 on the OneOuter.com podcast, sponsored by americascardroom.com. If you want 27% rate back from americascardroom.com, simply sign up for your account by clicking on one of the adverts or banners on the OneOuter.com website. Follow us on Twitter at OneOuter.com and join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash OneOuter. This episode and all other previous episodes are on the OneOuter.com website and also via iTunes for free. If you want to send questions in for Alex on a future show, then please email questions at OneOuter.com or you can tweet them or post them in the Facebook group. Alex, we are recording this one on a Monday, which might be a first. Uh, Last week we recorded on the Thursday as usual and then we were supposed to record on Friday, but... Um, from the, if you've listened to the last episode, episode 155, you'll have heard me moaning about my sore back, and the next day it was even worse, so Alex kindly agreed to reschedule this to give me a few more days of recovery, and glad to say it's easing off slightly, but you know, I, I still could moan about it for the next 40 minutes if you let me, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> and then I turned up, and Alex uh, was a little bit flustered today turning up, but he assures me that he's infused and ready to answer all these questions. Alex, you are here, we are recording. How are you? How's your weekend been? I'm good, man. Uh, weekend uh, weekend was good. Uh, cooked a pizza last night, watched the Seahawks beat the Philadelphia Eagles, who I know you don't know what that means, but they're the yeah. best team in the NFL, and uh, the Seahawks have a bunch of big injuries. So that, that was pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, just... It, it was a it was a good weekend. Got I found a place that does. I'm not really big on the cream cheese because I just uh, cheese doesn't sit as well in my stomach as it used to when I was younger. So I found a place that does tofu cream cheese, and then you can put tofu cream cheese on top of uh, like smoked salmon and put it in an everything bagel, and then get like uh, a double shot. Uh, espresso uh, coffee with it, and it's just, oh my god, man, I got that on Saturday, I was in heaven, <laughs> that was the greatest, I went and worked out, and uh, then I ate that, and it was like the greatest day of my life, so, yeah, things are going pretty well, so, sorry to hear about your back, by the way, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, and no matter how overweight, no matter how overweight or back problems I get, I'll never give in and have tofu. Um, <laughs> now, nah, I'll joking aside, I'm sure it's good, but um, the thing about tofu, every time I hear people talk about it, it's like, oh yeah, you just cook it with all these flavors and this and that, and it really takes that on, and you're like, right, so actual tofu is not nice on its own. Yeah. Yeah. At least... Uh... At least I'm not into uh, Vegemite or any of that. Or what's that weird stuff you guys have in Scotland? Mar- like, uh, Marmite. Marmite. Mar- is, is that like the... 
Marmite. I think it is like that. No, it's like that vegetable. It's like that veggie mix that I think it's. It's sort of like a black spread. That's like uh, you know, and the famous yeah, cap- caption is "You'll love it or you'll hate it." Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, nobody like turns thirty-six and decides I'm going to eat this. It's either something you grew up with or you didn't grow up with, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, although it's funny how tastes do change as you get older, you know, and certain things. Like I remember as a kid, I never like, I, you know, I didn't like tomatoes, like actual raw tomatoes, and then. Now as an adult, I love them. Um, so yeah, and that's weird. I mean. I, I'm trying to think of. Well, coffee is probably the big thing. I didn't yeah. like. I assume if you give me, even when it, to give you an idea of how young I was when I got on tour, like I didn't like the taste of coffee. Period. Uh, when I got started, uh, I thought it tasted gross and nasty, and I didn't like. I didn't like it in the form of a uh, cappuccino or anything, and. Right around uh, 22, you know, my soul died, and I needed something to reincarnate myself within, and I found black coffee. So, mm. yeah, everything, everything's going well now. No, cognac, coffee, uh, what, what else? Yeah, although obviously I don't drink much cognac anymore. Uh, <laughs> Sipping <yeah>. on yak. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. uh, no, it's funny, because uh, coffee is something I do like the taste of. I've always enjoyed the taste of it. But I'm not a big drinker of, you know, I don't drink it every week even, you know, I'll I'll have coffee randomly, usually if my girlfriend says she's going to get one and like, you know, alright, okay, sort of thing, it's not, it's not something I'll usually go and get off my own back or um, make myself either, you know, but, but I do like it, I do enjoy it, so, yeah. I think okay. olives are the one for me, uh, I remember as a kid tasting an olive and thinking like, uh, and then sort of like later teens tasting them and liking them and now I just like love olives that's like one of those real acquired tastes that they say is what whiskey yeah. is like it's olives are just you know I, I know my girlfriend was the same she never really cared for olives and then now I started getting them and we eat that and now we just love them you know she loves them as well it's funny you say that because last night when I was cooking a pizza my girlfriend said, Wait, why don't you put some olives on it? And I was thinking, olives? And I, I like olives, but I just I hadn't had them on pizza in a long time. So I said, okay. And I put some on there, and I was like, dang, this tastes really good. And it's, it's weird because I remember being like 14 and somebody be like, I got pepperoni pizza. Awesome. Then you open it up, there'd be olives on it. It's like, you ruined it. What did you do? Now I have to pick them out, and my fingers are going to get all sticky. Yeah, it's one of these things that, like, people... It's like pop culture, like, pizzas with olives are like, ah, like, you know, this or that. But, yeah, I love it. Anyway, we have really scraped the bottom of the food barrel here, like, with this podcast. We're talking about olives and coffee and uh, tofu as well. Uh, You started it with the tofu, trying to excite people with that. that. Uh, When you do come to Scotland or whatever, you know, I'll show you some some proper food and meat products that... Uh, <laughs> that, that you'll enjoy. So, what else has been happening? Were you playing any poker? Anything going on there? Good question. Uh, I played on Monday last week. I wanted to make sure I got at least one session in for the week, and then uh, I had that presentation to do with Split Suit, and that ended up being a much more busy time than I expected. And then I did. Uh, I had something. I want to say twelve lessons in three days, which mm. isn't that. 
It's not, it's not that many, but when you have other stuff going on, when you have a ton of emails coming in, uh, I got to a bunch of emails, and I still uh, get, I'll guarantee you when I open up my email inbox today, it's going to have 100 emails. And uh, when you're doing all that, it, it, it was a little hard to get another session in. Uh, yeah, I played one session. I went deep in one tournament. Not a whole lot happened. It, uh playing smaller buy-ins right now, just getting my feet wet again uh, for online poker. I was thinking I was going to play again today just because Mondays tend to be the best day to play online poker because every good player plays Sunday, and then they're just gassed out on Monday. And for whatever reason, I found Mondays to be pretty soft. And I was going to play today, but I think I might take a really rare day off for myself. I... It's strange. I, I do enjoy working. I don't mind. I, I really do enjoy my job. There's just certain days, I don't know what it is, you wake up feeling a certain way, or it, it, you're thinking, you know how this is, Barry, where you could take a day off, technically any day, but you want to be careful about that, because if you get into that habit, eventually no money's coming in. Yeah. So by default, you never take a day off, which isn't good either. Right? Yeah. It's, uh, I have a PlayStation 4 with literally 100 games, and I've beaten like three of them, but it, the rest of, a bunch of them, like probably 50 of them, I've never even touched. So my buddy, I, I let my buddy's kid play it for months, right? And he was like, it, uh, I shouldn't say he was like, he was saying oh, we feel really guilty, we're taking your stuff, and I, I kept saying, no, 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 please play it. <laughs> Do as much as you would like, because then at least one kid's life is amazing, as opposed to me just not ever using it. Yeah. And I have, right next to my bed, I have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 books. I'm reading a couple of them, they're good. I do read quite a bit, but it... It's strange, you just never take, you never know when to take a day off either when you're self-employed, because it, it, if it comes back around at any point where you should have been working, you're always going to think back to that day you sat around playing Sonic the Hedgehog for a couple of hours and go, yeah, I'm going to be pretty embarrassing to tell my family things are pretty tight on the <laughs> old pocketbook right now, because uh, Homeboy had to see how Tales Adventure ends, yeah. but... No, I, it's, you know what I do on days like this? I tell myself, you can quit at any time you want, but just start something for three minutes. And then the next thing I know, seven hours have gone by. So it's, it's a strange thing. Do you find it easy to take time off, Barry, or is it? No, what I, what I find, and it's weird just now with, with the injured back, is when you're self-employed, when something like that happens, it kind of like forces you to take time off and just uh, and you get a little bit uneasy with that but like today I still had to package up orders for like stuff I sold um, online you know package all that with a bad back and sore because there's nobody else here to do it for me just now and that's tough I gotta get it out and do it you know and mm -hmm. the, the only other thing is if with a serious injury or like a serious if I want to take a serious break I can put my online stores on holiday settings which means that i can still sell stuff but i can buy myself like an extra 10 14 days you know to dispatch it or whatever so there's little tools and that that you can do but this time of year is usually okay um for me but 
I think the important thing is just listen to yourself. One, your physical body, and two, your mental health. Because for a few years there, when I was coming back, like really grinding with business and really hammering the hours in and burning the midnight oil, I mean, I got myself in a proper state that was like Mm -hmm. I was making money, making good money, but I just didn't feel secure because party is like right i'm not going to screw up this time i'm not going to go broke i'm not going to do this so you're putting so much pressure on yourself and anything that feels like not work you you can beat yourself up about it and you end up just working every hour like god sends and for someone like myself who watches a lot of movies tv shows etc even then i wasn't doing much of that and that's when i was like god you know because at the end of the day i was just like i put something on and 20 minutes into I'd be asleep or, you know, whatever. It would be tough. So I think now, this, this year especially, I've got much better at just finding a balance and being okay because the time passes anyway. And that's true if you're sitting doing nothing or if you're sitting working 24 hours a day. So things will get done. Things will, you know, I, I do think it's important to have a balance and take some time, whether it's you want to just sit and read. Because a lot of the reading I do actually all filters back into like work stuff i, I read about business uh, biographies this that you know investment stuff and whatever it's i don't read much non-fiction if if any recently you know i, I could probably count you, on one hand much fiction right what's that you you meant to say you do not read much fiction right sorry yeah i don't read much fiction um in the last couple of years i probably read maybe like two books that were non-fiction maybe the last three or something like that um, and the rest of them, and even the non-fiction one are usually about sort of, <laughs> I don't know, like stuff, uh, sorry, even the fiction stuff is about things that are, you know, maybe business or uh, mm. stock market or whatever, you know, and it's, I enjoy it, so do what you enjoy, and it doesn't feel like working, it's that old thing, if you enjoy what you do, you, you never work a day in your life sort of thing. I mean, that's true to an extent that, yeah, thank God I'm not in a job that is, I'm not remotely interested in. But also, it's still important to give yourself time off where I can just sit and go, right, I'm going to watch five episodes of this TV show in a row and not feel, like, bad about it or whatever. And I'd say, like, you know, this year I'm much better at that because... The last few years, I just did the opposite. Work, 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 work. Made a lot of money. Had lot, you know, lots of money saved up in places and whatever. And still was, I'm not going to say miserable, but just a bit like, you know, if you're just working for money, it's like what we talk about in poker. There is no end result. It's infinite. You know what I mean? You're not going to make a billion, you're not going to save a billion pounds. You know, you're not going to save a million pounds, really. You know what I mean? So, what are you doing you know like so i think there's there is no end to money for money's sake so i think it's important to use the advantage that you've got of working for yourself to go i'm away on a little three-day break somewhere or i'm away for this whole day tomorrow i'm doing nothing i'm going to watch some movies watch tv and then walk into town and go and have something to eat or whatever and or go to the cinema and not feel remotely like oh i could have done this because you can do something at any point for anything you know so I'm a big believer of you really need, and in a weird way, you do need to, I think it energises you that way, and then you come back a bit more motivated, and you'll probably end up doing better and making more money and stuff, so 
I think as self-employed, it's hard because the buck stops with you. But you really do then need to take responsibility and force yourself to have a day off if that's what it's coming to. I think not just a day off, like a few days off and here and there, you know. And I, I'm much better at that this year. It's uh, I'm finding sitting around doing nothing a lot more um, happier than working actually recently. So. Yeah, I'm going to do it for as long as I want, you know, and, and then do little spells and whatever. I mean, that's the beauty about working for yourself. If, if if things aren't scheduled, you can literally do a blast of a couple hours and then do nothing. And then, I mean, I did that. The other day I worked maybe like seven, eight hours and then stopped. And then the next day I did a couple hours and then the next day I did nothing. And then the day after that I maybe did nothing apart from, you know, whatever. And then... You know, this technically is part of my self-employment, this podcast, and talking mm-hmm. to you within an hour, it doesn't really feel like, it's not hard work, you know, it's freezing mm-hmm. outside, I could be outside delivering pizzas or something, you know, it's like, it's. I think you need to do that, but it's important to take, no matter what you're doing, uh, it's important to stop burnout, to have a bit of a break, and, you know, give yourself some recreation. Well, and uh, to your point... If you win two WPTs, this is something Dennis and I were talking about. We were saying if you if you won WPT Montreal two years in a row, that'd be eight hundred thousand dollars. That now winning a WPT back to back years, that's an incredible accomplishment. That's astronomically good for tournament poker. Eight hundred thousand dollars is not enough to retire off of. 500, you'll get 500,000 after taxes or whatever it is, but even let's say it's $800,000. There's a lot of people who could not make that work. Right. You, you could or you couldn't, right? But if you have a family and you live in a town that's not Buffalo, New York, I'm, my money is going to be against you being able to retire off that. You could invest very intelligently, possibly you could make it work, but I would bet against most people being able to make that work their entire life, assuming they want to have a family or relationships or what have you. So if you think about it, your entire salary is the days you take off. Your entire salary is what you enjoy about the job, should you enjoy anything. Again, I always talk about... I was talking about this with... uh, uh, with my girlfriend recently was uh, when I go into the gym, every, every trainer there wanted to be a professional athlete and whether I realize it or not, even though I'm not a professional athlete, I am a professional competitor and there are tournaments and there are leaderboards and then there are magazines and then it is a competition. And really the whole reason I do this is because I enjoy the process of waking up early grabbing a cup of coffee and going over things and learning and becoming better to the point where I didn't really care that it took me, I, I would call myself a, I'm, I'm not going to be humble because I hate false humility. I would call myself a very good null and hole player. And I think the only way I attained that was through 10 years of nonstop work. Sorry, you're going to hear my heater in the side, which is doing or it's a ghost, Barry. It's one of your trashy films. <laughs> it's, a, it's a ghost beating down the beating down the wall in my row house in Newark. But uh, your your salary has to be that. It has to be the fact you enjoy, it, and it has to be your days off. If you don't take your days off, there's not a salary to be hold. It's 
it's just working, and you're never going to make enough money to finish up. And furthermore, there's a lot of research that shows if you retire, if you want to kill somebody 10 years earlier, help them retire. Like, there's a lot of evidence that that's what happens, is early retirement just runs you to the ground. In Okinawa, Japan, and Nicoya, Costa Rica, people live to be the longest. The one thing both of these... Uh, there's two things both of these places share, which is mostly, like, grain and plant diet. If they do have meat, it's usually a little bit of fish, right? And the second thing is they never retire. You're always doing something with uh, the community. It's the same thing with the uh, island in Greece where people live to 108 years old or whatever ridiculous number it is. It's not 108, but whatever it is. And uh, it's the same thing. They eat a lot of vegetables. They eat a lot of grains. And they uh, they never retire. Even even if they're retired, quote unquote, they're still running. Like the if there's going to be a dance for the youth, like it's the older folks running it. If if someone's going to take care of their yard, it's going to be them. Even if they are 89 years old, uh, they wake up early to chat with their neighbors. So I would argue work is good for you. I think work is ennobling. I, th I don't think work is something to be avoided. I think it's oftentimes your calling in this life. There's, and many times we have to come to grips that compensation has nothing to do with what what good your job does. Uh, being an assistant to the stars will probably, that could make you millions of dollars, but essentially you're going to be someone's uh, whipping boy uh, your entire life and there's sometimes the star would do much better without you there because they're just babied all the time or with somebody who perhaps set some limits and didn't charge quite as much. Whereas if you're a teacher or you're somebody who helps somebody with their health, either by just leading uh, like a free bicycling class or something like that, you're doing a lot for the community, especially if you create uh, groups that people can be a part of that can prevent suicides. That can prevent depression. That doesn't mean your compensation is going to equal the contribution that you make to society. And I think we have to get past... Something that you said that really resonated with me was there's never going to be enough money. It's never going to be enough. You will, you can, it, like you said, it's infinite. You can keep earning it. And then... Uh, this was something Tim Ferriss was asking, which is probably one of the best questions he ever asked, was he was talking with a guy who arranges get-togethers for billionaires, and the guy said flippantly, well, of course, the seminar is only 36 hours long because the billionaires don't have 48 hours to spare because they have to come in on their private jets and go out on their private jets. And then Tim Ferriss asked, well, then what's the point of being a billionaire? Mm -hmm. Like, these people are like, they're literally competing with other billionaires. Like, that's a, he bought an island in Costa Rica, I want one in Nicaragua. I want two in Nicaragua. It never ends. It literally just never ends. So, yeah, the, the days you take off are your salary. I just, Barry, I'm so damn addicted to it right now. I'm so, I didn't get results for so long, and now I'm getting resort, results financially, mentally, physically, through my game. And I just, I don't want to stop, but I, it's just like if you were managing a basketball team, you wouldn't put, uh, you know, you wouldn't put your players out there like the entire game. You'd run substitutions or you'd rest them certain nights. So mm -hmm. it's a, 
it's a weird process because I'm supposed to be uh, I'm supposed to be the head coach and the player when really it's hard to be in both modalities. You have to uh, like I always have to ask myself if this was one of my players, what would I tell them to do? But that's not what I personally want to do. What I personally want to do is way different, and what I'll feel comfortable with is way different. Uh, anyways, guys, we blabbed about this a little longer than I meant to, uh, but yeah, anyway, you're all used to it now. Let's get into the question. Well, just one more quote I love, and I can't remember when I picked it up recently, but it's about sort of along that mindset and stuff we've been talking about there. It's like this guy says, I've got so much to do today that I need to meditate for an hour instead of half an hour, as usual. Yeah. You know, and it, it, it's true. It's like... No matter if you've got lots to do, lots of projects on, it's even more important that you get a little bit of you time. And you know, I, I know it's hard when you've got this anxiety and stress of wanting to finish stuff and get on with things, but it is better. Literally, a ten-minute walk around the block and then come back to it, you always feel better. So um, mm. anyway, yeah, let's get into the questions. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. And uh, this first one is from David, and it's hello. I have a question for the show. It's in regards to some of the hands Daniel Negreanu has been tweeting about the Bellagio 100k buy-in, specifically this hand. So I've screenshotted this, and it is Bryn Kenny raises three times under the gun six-handed. You make it 10x from the button with 10-10. He goes all in for 85 big blinds. You do what? Uh, you fall. So he ran it as a poll, and 65% of people said fold, 35% of people said call. But this guy says he he was interested in the dynamic about these high rollers, about a play like that. So if you want to just talk about that situation, Alex. Uh, Bring Kenny raises three times under the gun six-handed. You make it 10x from the button with 10s, and he goes all in for 85 blinds. What's the reasoning there? Is there any, like, meta game or what's going on? Well, uh, my guess is Daniel Negreanu is making an adjustment, which I really like here, which is he's, in the old days, Negreanu would just call there with pocket tens. And I think that was a good strategy in the old days because big blind and small blind was really likely to fold, in which case you would be heads up. And I think Daniel Negreanu was masterful when he was heads up post-slot. And I think Daniel Negreanu is starting to realize, uh, as all players are starting to realize, and this this was a big part of uh, that free webinar I did with uh, Split Suit, was it doesn't really matter how good you are. If you flat on the button there, and then the small blind flats you and the big blind flats you, you got to hit a hand. Yeah. Uh, because most likely someone's going to hit something. Even if the big blind calls you and you're in position... You're, you're still in an advantageous position with a better hand, don't get me wrong, but it, it's far more likely someone is going to hit their hand on that flop, it, which is, uh, that could work to your benefit if you're playing a cash game. In a cash game, you have all the time in the world. You can go in there and you can go fishing. Uh, you, can hit your, you can hit your flop and try to get the whole stack. In tournaments, cash games to me are about winning big pots. To me, it's about the execution once you get the flop turning river and a lot of other bets are like playing patty cake trying to simulate the fact that you're a bit more of an uh crazy player than you uh you seem to be 
Yeah. Like you make like thin value bets uh, that you wouldn't normally make just because you have infinite money in uh, cash games. Uh, you do uh, you do some more defensive betting than you wouldn't normally do. Or some uh, my play that looks really crazy, which isn't that crazy, is I ISO a lot in cash. So there will be three limpers and. I'll have ace-queen offsuit on the button, and the typical ISO raise there is 7x, 9x. I make it 14 or 15, because if one guy calls me, it's usually the worst player at the table. And if everybody folds, I just made five big blinds, which doesn't sound like a lot, but if you do that three times in a night, even if you're playing 1-2, that's going to add up to like $30, $35. And... Again, this is ace-queen, which is good for a couple big blinds, and when you raise and everybody folds, you've just made five and a half big blinds with no variance. Now, that actually isn't that crazy of a play. I just explained it to you. And furthermore, if you do get a guy who gets pissed off like four hours into the session, he's going to limp call with five, six suited, and then you, you could possibly bust the guy. But what, what all anybody re- remembers is kind of like a young guy – ISO raises big, and, uh, well, that kind of pisses me off, right? So you do these things, and then you try to get the big kahuna, uh, big one. So you might flat with 10s, because if you flop a set, that's really likely to get 150 big blinds out of someone if they flop a couple pairs, right? Now, since your river, on the river, in poker tournaments, there's just not as much money out there as there could be in a cash game. If you bet 5x, 10x... On the river, a lot of times there's only like 20x left or whatever, whereas if you work with these big old bets on the river in cash games, it, it, it could be a very intelligent idea of you to play coy with 10s because uh, if you get a check jam on the guy on the river, it's 120 big blinds. A lot of times there's not even space for that in tournaments. So tournaments are much more about chopping out little pots, and I think Daniel Negreanu is very good at that. Uh, back in the day when he just flatted people because what he would do is he'd flat people and he played these small pots in position and he was just, quite frankly, much better than the field at playing post-flop and he was much better at reading people. Uh, physical tells are a big deal. Uh, what, whatever anybody tells you, they are. Um, if you, I used a physical tell to win my biggest pot on day one in WPT Montreal and I'm actually not very good with them, so I can't even imagine what a player like Daniel Negreanu was seeing. Uh, so he's trying to chop out, He's what he's trying to do is isolate a guy that in my mind is really likely a perpetual opener. Uh, Bryn Kenny, uh, I don't know a ton about his game, but I have seen him, I have played with him in a, a 5K final table at uh, PCA. Uh, he he was at my table, and he, he can definitely, he can play a couple pots, right? So I think Danny Negrano ices him here. And then uh, I think a lot of guys feel their choice there is binary. Uh, they say, I have to call here or I have to fold. Because if I 4-bet to 25x, uh, that's just so much in my stack, and if he calls me, I'll have to shove on any flop, and that's going to be uncomfortable. Uh and if I go to 30x, it doesn't leave him that much room to 5-bet bluff. Daniel Negrano is not the type to 5-bet bluff. Uh, therefore, there's no, no real purpose. Uh, therefore, I have to call, which, by the way, is going to lose you money in the long run, or I'm going to fold, which is really going to make you lose in the long run. 
Whether Bernie Kinney knows it or not, he actually has a fine forebet here because the forebet is going to be such a substantial amount of his stack anyway. It might seem preposterous to shove 85 big blinds uh, over 10, but he's more or less committed if he goes 3x anyway to 30. And you guys also have to remember, right now at this point, there's 15 big blinds in that pot. You, with aces... No, like aces on average make like ten big blinds. This is aces and a half. This is this is like if you pick up this pot uncontested, it's like having a trick dealer slip you aces and kings, right? And if there was a really large potential, you could get the fifteen big blinds in there that, and you didn't go for it. Instead, you flatted. Now you're negative like one x. Uh, per hand, are you folded? Now you're negative 3x, which is negative 300 big blinds. Uh, it's essentially like the next time you get kings, you just open mock. And then right after that, the next time you get aces, you open mock. And if you can imagine that, doing that in the span of one tournament would not be that intelligent. So, now if Daniel Negreanu has begun isolating, 3-betting much more, as many people are beginning to do, and his three-betting range there includes pseudo-connectors and middling pairs, and he's folding tens, that means his three-bet is... Oh, if it's 15%, that would surprise me. But then his calling range is like 4%, right? Which means uh, he's folding um, way more than two-thirds of the time. And then let's say you do this with a hand such as ace-king. Ace-king would actually be a very good hand to do this with if... He does believe Daniel Negreanu is isolation three-betting him quite wide. Uh, perhaps he thinks... No, I'm not going to go down that route because that's not true. Um, but, uh, like, a lot of people might say, like, wow, that's a really big four-bet with ace-king. Uh, that being said, if he does get called, he usually has pretty substantial equity. Uh, obviously, if the other guy is aces, that's that. But there is quite a bit of merit to this play. Uh, Four bets are way profitable. Four four betting is a very profitable endeavor. Uh, You can also, it's one of the most simple things to compute in Cardrunner's EV. It is very fascinating if you get people three betting wider ranges and calling. There's a lot of times, I've done the math and found out, oh yeah, I could four bet, uh, especially this really comes up in heads up. If you're playing heads-up cash games, you find you find a guy's like three betting you 18% of the time, and then you just shove 50, 60 big blinds, and you think he's calling 6%. There's a lot of times you could shove king five suited. Now it wouldn't be the greatest idea on earth, but if you have like king jack off suited, it's even better. So you just keep slamming the door on the guy. He gives you 15, 20 big blinds, and then he quits you, multiplied by 16 different games a day. And now, now you're going to be doing pretty well. And then you're pretty much free-rolling when somebody does call you. And then, yeah, once in a while you run into aces, such as life, and you move on. And I do think that could be a very professional play by Baron Kenny. Obviously, not seeing the cards, this could totally just be, I have kings, wahoo, let's get it in. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I don't. These are the things I'm thinking when I see this hand. So is it important? I know you when we've talked about balancing before, I know you sometimes don't like that, Alex, in terms of tournaments. You say, like, yeah. 
But is it important then we do that with aces and kings sometimes as opposed to like our ace-queen suited and ace-king and maybe jacks or queens as well? You know, it's that full sort of range of hands. I mean, it's not 7-8, is it? You know, it's not 7 right, suited right. or jack-10 suited. And um, I do... I, I do believe it's appropriate to balance how wide, especially if you're playing 100k high rollers, which, by the way, guys, caveat emptor, this is way above my pay grade. Like, I'm a coach in MLS soccer. I, I don't, I'm not in Premier League, right? I don't do World Cup soccer or whatever, right? But uh, there, it, this is far different of a game, and there's probably things going on in this game I don't know about, but... If this were me, let's say, and I have played tournaments with really good poker players before. Uh, yeah, like if I do a four bet there with ace king, I also have to be prepared to do it with kings, right? I have to, if I do that, I did a huge jam one time with uh, ace queen offsuit uh, deep. There was a player, uh, I don't, <laughs> he was supposed to be really good, but I don't remember his name now. Uh, he. I opened to 2.5x, he opened to, he 3-bet to 7.5, I 4-bet 65 all in the first time with ace-queen, this was like in the WCOOP 10k, and yeah, to balance with that, the next time I had aces, I 4-bet, and he called off pretty wide, because a lot of people, well, it, it, it's a shot to a lot of people's pride, uh, just, even though it's such a preposterously large 4-bet, that if you just tighten your ranges, you can crush me if I really was going to continue that. But it becomes a game of rock, rock, paper, scissors. After I show you paper once, is it really likely I'm going to go paper the next time? Yeah. And it's a, and it does get fun like that, the balancing aspect. And I think that's what guys like Doug Polk are really good at. Uh, I, do, I, do think, I, I do think guys like uh, Jungle Man... To me, when I did watch him play, I got the idea he just got a lot off of timing and things like that. That was my that was my guess. Having listened to Doug Polk talk, I think it's much more he randomizes way more effectively, which some people have an innate ability to do. Messi, uh, when it comes to penalty kicks, is game theory optimal versus every goalie. Like when they do a deep analysis, he is the best. Now, is there any chance Messi? has ever used a game theory optimal calculator? No. There's no way, right? There's no way he's looking at his watch and randomizing before he runs up to that ball. But there are some guys who have really good minds for that. The reason I tend to skew away from that when we're teaching is if you're going to play 40 hands with a guy and you're not playing a 100K high roller, if you're playing against a goalie and you're doing a penalty kick and he jumps right 95% of the time, kick left, and if he happens to if he happens to jump left that time, and jumps left the next time, then we can start reconsidering our strategy. But literally, you almost never come to that fork in the road, so don't worry about it. Okay, and um, let's go to the next question then. The mm-hmm. next question is from anonymous, so I will not read your name out, sir. Uh, Hello, when I'm playing blind versus blind, I sometimes end up leveling myself when I raise and I'm 3-bet, or I 3-bet the small (laughs) blind, and then they jam. Can you talk about some examples that can help explain and give me a starting point in this situation? Thank you. Uh, Thank you for your question. 
I actually, I was writing a webinar about small blind to big blind play. Uh, no idea when it's going to come out because, well, praise be to God, I have a lot of work right now. And uh, that's the funny thing. When you're not self-employed, it's like, oh, no, I have to work, right? When you are self-employed, it's like, oh, thank Christ, I have work, right? <laughs> it's like, woo, thank God I'm busy today, right? But, uh, uh, well, let, let me tell you. Let me, let me give you the long and the short of it, Anonymous. By the way, good thing you didn't enclose your name because... Uh, I would have read it. I wouldn't want my boss hearing this question either. But, uh, uh, well, I mean, the first thing to think of is... I'll ask you a question, Barry, and answer this honestly, and there's no right or wrong answer. If it folded around to a guy in the small blind who you've never seen before... And he 5X'd it, and you had 45X, and you looked down at Ace-Deuce offsuit. Would you call, fold, or move all in? I'd probably fold. Okay, so if you fold there, you're folding 80-something percent of the time. I can't remember what it is, right? Okay. It depends on how you range the rest, how many suited connectors you, you, uh, how many suited connectors you call with. But his 5X raise likely with Annie's needs to work 66% of the time. So right there he's outplayed you and completely neutralized your, his positional advantage. Now, how many people are going to raise the 5X from the small blind? Absolutely no one. Because why? Because they will get made fun of, and most people do not play poker to make money. They play poker to feel good about themselves, or they play poker as a hobby. And whenever we do a communal hobby, we don't want to get made fun of. If we played basketball down at the YMCA and we were just a garbage player, and everybody started making fun of us, we probably wouldn't want to go play basketball there again. Unfortunately, in poker, it kind of pays to be a horse's ass. So that's one play. You can always just take a bludgeon to your opponents many times in no limit hold'em. People are very, in, people are very poor at figuring out how often bets need to work when you bet big. Over bets are fantastic. Big bets are fantastic. Another big bet I like to do is I limp in, the guy raises to 2.5x, I make it 11. And then uh, it looks exactly like aces. Like, if you saw that, Barry, you'd just assume it was some nerd with aces, right? Yeah, big hunt, yeah. Yeah, it's a big hand, right? And, I mean, if they catch me, they catch me. The reason nobody wants to do that, there's actually, there's a huge, okay, I've been studying penalty kicks a lot lately, if you guys can't, can't catch it, but... I thought I could steal some game theory ideas because there's tons of literature on penalty kicks. But one thing an economist put forward is a terrific idea in penalty kicks is to kick right at the goalie. But nobody wants to do it because if you're wrong, you'll look dumber than anyone who's ever walked the earth. Sports radio is going to tear you a new one the next day, right? It's the same thing when you limp raise 11x and the guy goes all in. you got to go, uh-oh. Right, and you got to pretend like, oh, I got a big hand here. I got Ace Jack. Ace Jack, you want to call? <laughs> yeah. You want to call? You want to call? Talk to me, bub. Right? And uh, nobody wants to be that guy. But anything, you can take a bludgeon to it, right? Now, uh, it, this is, okay, I actually, this hand is in my rotation. I have a new lesson plan that I'm using with all my students. I'll let you guys in on one of my hands, right? And all these hands are to, it's, it's, it's like a whole body workout. It's supposed to work out like five or six poker muscle groups at the same time. And one of these is 
let's say, okay, let's say we raise and let's say we raise to three X. If you're going to raise to three X, you damn well better have a good game on flop turn river. Cause by God, people are going to test you. Now, if you raise to three X on a nine, six, three board and the big blind calls, Oh, excuse me. You raise the three X pre-flop. The guy calls the board comes nine of spades, six of hearts, three of spades. You see that, 3.5 big blinds, he calls. How many streets are you betting versus somebody with 35x, Barry, generally? Sorry, say that again. I was daydreaming. No, you understood the question. You just don't know the answer. The, you raised a 3x preflop. The guy called. Fold it the to board, me. I, I make it three and a half times. You, you, you see that 4x. Nine of spades, six of hearts, three of spades board, or 3.5x, whatever you want. The guy flat calls you. You have jack seven of hearts, let's okay. say. Okay. How many how many streets are you betting generally here? How many? Well, probably if he calls the C bet, depending on the player, I might f- fire a second barrel on the turn, and then depending on the card, and then probably cl- if he calls turn again, then I'm I'm full I'm closing that I'm closing that. Good, good job, Barry. That is the absolute best way to maximize your losses, and I'll tell you why. Because, no, I'm sorry, Barry, it's too easy. But, <laughs> no, no, I'll tell you what happens is everybody calls the turn too much and then shuts down on the river too much. When he calls you on that board, what is the best hand he has typically, Barry? Uh, the best hand he has typically, uh, well, I would say probably top pair, a nine or... A top, top pair. Does it seem like he... If you get top pair to fold by the river, you should almost always be triple barreling. Do you think you'll be able to get a nine to fold by this river most of the time? Depending on the turn and river, obviously, yeah. Turn, okay, turns a spade. Do you fire again? Two of spades. Yeah, 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 fire. Good. Why? Because it's a scare card for him, and I'm, imp- you know, I'm going to fire How often does he have a flush? How often does he have a flush? What I percentage don't. of the time? I, I don't know percentage of time. Hey, take a guess. Take 10, a guess. 25%? It's 15. It's okay. e- it, A lot of times it's even less. Because what what does he do with a big flusher on the flop? Does he call or does he raise? Mm, well, depending on the player. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I think some, okay, some, what some, the, what does the some field raise do? sometimes call. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, that, uh, what does the field generally do, Barry? Do you know this? I'd say call. Uh, the field generally raises. The, the, the field is infatuated with raising with flush rods. Mediocre flush rods they call with. Inside flush rods, they raise way too much. Yeah. And like gut shots with flush rods, they raise too much. So the guy rules out a lot. You can rule out a bunch of flush rods, too. And then sets in two pairs, a lot of times he would raise on the flop. So he's left with a nine. So if you get an overcard, you get a spade, you do a bam, bam. And if you're not prepared to do that, you're not prepared to go double barrel, triple barrel, you should be 5Xing from the small blind or... You should be limpery raising. You should be finding a way to not... If you do not know how to play flop, turn, and river, find a way to not play flop, turn, and river. But flop, turn, and river play, it's definitely... I don't want to say it's hard, but it's not easy. It it, it takes a lot of work. It takes a, There are shortcuts. Uh, Master of the Flop is all about the shortcuts, right? Like, if you see this board, they have this, this percentage of time, so do right? Check, give up, they have it. Or bet, they never have it. And when people follow that, that's a real easy way to link a bunch of crap, uh, 
to link a bunch of crap together, prop it together, right? And uh, you can figure out what those boards are. Like, a really good board is uh, everybody, whenever I see one of my students, like, see that the 567 board, in the turns and eight, they check, give up, like, just blood shoots out my nose. Because on average, the guy does not have a nine or a four. And there's so many one pair combinations that fold on that turn. Now, okay, now I'll never get to bluff that board for the rest of my life. There's lots of boards like that that you can look for. And the key to it, the way you're going to get better at it, is just rolling the dice on Flopzilla at home, yeah. simulating these blind versus blind spots, and just going, on this board I'll do this, on this board I'll do that, and on this turn I'll do this, and this turn I'll do that. And if you keep doing that, you'll find categories start appearing. When the turn pairs, when the turn brings a flush draw, when the turn changes nothing. And when the guy calls with ace highs, what do you do on the turn? When the guy three bets ace highs, what do you do on the turn? And if you can categorize it and simplify it, you'll become much better. Poker is amazing this way. It's not like... You can show me how to do a perfect jump shot. I'm not going to be able to do it because I'm uncoordinated and white. However, I can show you how to play cards because literally all you have to do is grab the chips and put them across the line. I can teach anybody on earth to do that. Anybody on earth. In fact, you don't even need to be able to do that. There are people who unfortunately uh, have special needs, but they can have, you know, they come into the tournaments with people that help them. You just need to have the mental wherewithal to understand why you're placing the chips there in the first place. And the way you do that is not by playing more poker. It's by studying more poker. And studying does not mean you sit around with your grab-ass buddies talking about your poker hands, telling each other how sick you are. It means you pull up Flopzilla, you throw out a random term, and you th- turn, and you think, why am I betting? How often does that need what? How often does that need to work? What does that accomplish? And what is the ranges show I should do? Until you're not doing that, you have no business playing professional poker. Until you are testing yourself that way, you have no business. It would just be like any sports star is going to a practice. They're going to throw the ball around the court, and it's going to be like, sink the shot. Do the shot. And if you can't do the shot, you're not prepared. If you don't know how to hit a shot, from a certain part of the court, or half the court, the defense is just going to throw you into that part of the court all the time. And guess what? Most of you guys have 70% of the court, 80% of the court, you can't hit the shot on. And if you think pros don't know that, you are wrong. They work on that. They work on fields. This is, I believe my statistical analysis is superior because I know what the field is doing, like the field below the field of pros, and then I know what the pros are doing, and I create a strategy that wipes out all of them. But I can look at their statistics and see they are changing how they play to you. Something that everybody learned how to do at the exact same time was double barrel. And then everybody's full to C-bet on the turn went from 55 to 35. Barry just demonstrated he's one step behind. Therefore, he's going to get murdered by most people these days. Sorry, yeah, the, Barry. The, the fields I play at, I've met, I know yeah, some people. Fun. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you'll be fine in Dundee playing with the postman. I'm going to get yeah, that's what I mean. that's it, what, it might not work, but. Yeah, uh, that's what I mean. It's like on the. Uh, the certain players live, like, look that. I mean, in the Scottish game, like, when I know these tournaments, I like 200 buy-in or 300 buy-in or whatever, like, decent-ish size pots, you know, like, prize pools. And as soon as they, you know, flush shot and they call and then check and then call, 
literally, <laughs> if, the, if the flush misses, like, I know that I can just, like, you'll buy the pot. You know, it's like, yeah, they may yeah. as well put flush straw on their head. So I get what you're saying, and I do play differently online than I play live, like, 100%. If you, oh, yeah. If you, look to, you know, it's, yeah, but I, I think I'm, I don't know, in certain spots, I, I definitely get it wrong, you know, and vice versa, live and online, you know, maybe, maybe online I play a bit too loose, and then live sometimes I play a bit too tight as well, so it's weird, it's weird, but, um, no, I, I get what you're saying, and obviously, the thing I like about your approach in terms of that, the statistical analysis of it, it kind of takes that uncertainty out of the, um, your head and you're making the decision and pulling the trigger based on you've crunched mm. the numbers so yeah. there, there's no emotion you know unless as you say the postman calls on an ace high flop and then he checks calls again he's got it you know it's like right. <laughs> you know, there's certain there's certain situations um with certain players where uh statistics you know you do even though it works x percent of time they've not taken into account for this player who literally is the tightest guy you've ever played against or you know if there's a flush draw you'll call and you'll he'll, he'll call they don't think mathematically they will call call and leave themselves with 20 percent of their stack and if they miss their flush on the river they'll check fold you know it's like mm. it's, no and that's uh, to me that's the beautiful thing about poker is uh all right, when i was playing wpt montreal i just paid attention to every single hand because just At the risk of sounding very, like, hokey and up in my head, but there's a, like, people's ranges, it's almost like a vibration you can get from them, right? Like, you can convert it to numbers, but they, changing the numbers to do something you would never do, like, the play, the call down I did, I called a guy down with second pair, second kicker, and caught him with Jack. I I could never do that online. Because nine times out of ten, when a guy bets the river, he's got it online people are people if you want to know anything about databases just from the beginning i'll tell you what people do they don't bluff enough and they call too much that's all you if you just make adjustments based on that you will learn much more about poker but what that means is online i have to there's a lot of there's a lot of times it feels like data entry it's me sitting there and applying a system which is fascinating to me because i'm a nerd but it's not going to be as compelling to the average person, which is why live poker has such a beauty to it, which is you can look at the postman and say, this guy really values his money. He's got, you know, he's, he's got a really nice, well-fresh shirt, really conservative haircut. His nails are clean and uh, cut down. This guy is a bit more conservative. Now you see a guy coming in with a McDonald's wrapper that he's eating through on his effort to get to the end of the uh, the burger, and he's kind of like shaking himself around as he saunters down to the table, and he starts bragging about how he's the best pot limit Omaha player in Montreal. Well, now you got a bit of a different image, right? So, you have to go off of what you're seeing at what time. Yeah, definitely. And it all goes back to the famous Phil Ivey thing where he said he doesn't know, how, he just decides how he's going to play when he sits down at the table. Yeah, you take what the table gives you. You know what? I hate that quote, though, now, because now I hear it. Uh, I, I wrote an article, and I, didn't, I don't think I did it as well as I'd like, but something I say to my students, I go, what's your plan for showing up to this tournament? And they go, you know, I'm going to take what the table gives me. And I always, 
you know, there's some guys like, oh, they're good. They can get away with that, right? There's sometimes I want to say, let's imagine a world where we suck at poker. What should, should we really show up? Like, if there's a girl you want to go up to and talk to, and this girl's like your dream girl, are you going to go up without a plan? Are you just going to have, like, one way you're going to, are you going to go up there and just stammer in front of her? No, you're going to have some remedial idea of something she might be interested in that you're going to bring up a certain way. Yet when people go to play poker for literally millions of dollars, it's like, I'll figure it out when I get there. And you should have, to me, there's a rhythm section that you need to adhere to, which is this is the base, the rhythm of this game. And then when you get there, you improvise. When you get there, you improvise. So I, I see what you're saying. I see what Phil Ivey is saying, but you have to know the basics before you know how to alter it. Well, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm going on that as as we're taking. I'm taking that as red. Sorry when I hear that quote. I'm I'm hearing that. Sit down and actually pay attention to what the players are doing because you, you're not playing in a vacuum. You know, it's you're not playing in a, a sterilized environment or a simulation. You're playing with a guy that's maybe just steaming because the waitress has annoyed him and he's had a phone call from someone and whatever and. You know, loads of things. If you've played live lots, like, I've played more live than online, although I've played, obviously, more hands online than I have live, you know, but in terms of playing in an, an environment, definitely, when you say, like, picking up a, a vibration or if you want to get, like, sort of in it like that, but just little subtle things that you pick up with playing the same people again and again and little moods and the way they throw the chips out and the way they say things and definitely, I mean, not even physical tells, but just knowing that player would never do that in this situation makes you do things differently mm. against him that you would never do against another player. You know, but you can... Some of the players when I used to play live all the time, it was literally like their cards were face-up. So, I mean, it's, I'm not even joking. You know, so, well, there's yeah. sometimes... The weirdest thing is when you've been doing it as long as I have. It, it's getting to the point... It, I started playing poker for like... I don't even know if we ever talked about this on the show, but I, I, I played left tackle in American football, and I did it for 10 years. And I turned 15, and I got to high school, and I saw the guy who was ahead of me for that position. He was 120 pounds heavier. And he was much bigger. And I realized I can live in the weight room, I can juice, and I'll probably still be a crappy college player if I'm really lucky. And... To me, if there was no chance of doing anything with it, I just I wasn't into it. So I gained a ton of weight that year because I stopped playing football and I stopped doing sports, and that's usually what kept me skinny. And then I found poker, and that was like that was it. I was like, oh, I'll become a pro in this. I'm going to become a professional because I can't make the NFL. Like that's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. So. I have been playing poker from 15 to I'm about to turn 30, so I'm about to cross the juncture where more than half of my life has been spent playing poker. And from the time I was 15 years old, I was reading books, I was studying, I was taking notes, I was playing every minute of every day. What's really nuts is once you get into it, you will show up and you will spend an hour with a guy and you'll know everything about that guy. You'll know how he plays his flush draws, you'll know how he bluffs, You'll know what makes him insecure. Because even though he's French-Canadian, you met the exact same guy in Bullhead City six months ago. You met the exact same kid in Italy 
a year and a half ago. And I don't mean literally it's the same guy. I mean people fall into categories yeah. the more you play poker. And the more you're able to, I, I think uh, they call it chunking, they, the more you're able to understand a subject deeply and put complex ideas into more manageable chunks, you will just see, like, oh, this, this is how this guy does it. This is how this guy does it. And uh, that really becomes super powerful because then you don't have to see the cards to know what's going on. The other way you can confirm it is what Tommy Angelo called sixth straight. What are, what are people's expressions after the hands happen? And a lot of people will just tell you they're that guy. People will just tell you they're that guy, right? You want to know if a guy... If, you see a line that you're pretty sure is the value hand. You want to know if a guy can't value bet on the river. Uh, if he checks back and he shows he had a value hand, that's a big one. But if he bets something super huge and then the guy folds, and he still looks really happy with himself, that tells you something about the guy. And he, you know, his blood pressure didn't rise. It's, you know, he four-bet preflop, so it's really likely he had something. That's somebody who can't value that effectively, right? And that'll tell you something. Even that will tell you something. It's so fun once you start being able to make those connections, and you start seeing, oh, when I used to watch poker at the plaza, when I was 16. Do you even remember that, Barry? Do you remember that tournament? No, no. Daniel Negreanu won. It was like this small 108-man tournament they played at the plaza, and they turned it into a seven-day thing. First prize couldn't have been more than $90,000, and everybody was everybody was there. And it was just the most excellent coverage you could watch. Of poker at the time, there was Daniel Negreanu, there was Howard Letterer, there was Lane Flack, there was Freddie Deeb, all the big names at the time, and uh, you you finally understand like that's why they did this thing because they grew up watching that, and that means this, and that to me is endlessly fascinating about poker that you could be 15 years into this game and just now feel like you're getting it, just now feel like oh I'm making that connection that was there. So when people talk about poker is endlessly frustrating, you have to say that's job security, and that's what's so fun about it. And bringing this all back to the beginning, that's your real salary. Because, again, if you win two WPTs back-to-back and you live in a first-world country like the United States, that's probably not enough money to retire off with your family. All right, guys, that, that's it. I can't wrap it up better than that. Okay. And I don't think you ever retire, anyway, if you're a you poker never- player. Me never. buying and selling as well. It's just you never do it. I'll be doing it till I'm <laughs> till like Brit. Yeah, that's it. Okay, Alex. How can people get in touch with you for your programs, packages, and webinars, etc.? Uh, write me at Alex at PokerRadarush.com if you want to do private coaching. And uh, I have a new program going on. It takes about uh, I can I can do a very shortened version of it in, in uh, two days. That really helps. It shows you all the new angles based on. Uh, the latest data technology that I have uh, in regards to player fields, both live and online, and what plays work very, very well against them. It has been tested in the field, and it works extremely well. Uh, if you want to talk to me about that, that's $300 for two lessons. You can write me at alex at com. If you want to sign up for my newsletter, it's at pokerheadrush.com, which is my little fun blog. Uh, but you can sign up for the newsletter, which is all poker content all the time. Uh, you can sign up for it on the right of that page. And uh, go ahead and check out my newest training videos on Tournament Poker Edge. 
follow me on Twitter at the Assassinato. And uh, I think that's it. I feel like there's more, but I know. Anyhow, whatever. That that'll that'll be all for now today, folks. Yeah, you're slipping. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, keep your questions coming in for Alex on future shows. Questions at oneouter.com on email, and we'll get them read out. Alex, I will see you Thursday for the next show, and uh, until then, thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers. The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu.